0: What's up, Welcome to a new episode of the So What Podcast, a little pod all about historical needlework and those who stitched it. I'm your gal, your pal, Isabella Rosner, the hostess of this here podcast. This is So What's 70th episode, which feels like a big deal. I don't know, 70 is not really like an important number. I feel like 75 is the big one. But 70 feels big. So today's episode is an interview with Dr. Lynn Hulse about the early history of the Royal School of Needlework, also known as the RSN. This episode is a compliment to two other So What episodes about the Royal School of Needlework also, which those two episodes are an interview with Susan K. Williams, chief executive of the Royal School of Needlework, which was from season one, and an interview with Dennis Notedruft, curator of the Fashion and Textile Museum, about the Royal School of Needlework exhibition at the museum back in May of this year. Whereas the episode with Susan focused on the RSN Now, and the Dennis episode focused on an exhibition that covered the RSN's history, this episode with Lynn will be about the institution's early years in the 1870s. And I'm releasing this episode now, in November of 2022, because this is the Royal School of Needlework's 150th anniversary month. Exciting! Exciting! Before I tell you about who Dr. Lynn Hulse is and remind you about what the RSN is all about, I gotta chat social media. So for images of what we discuss in this episode, you can visit the So What social media pages by searching So What Podcast, S-E-W-W-H-A-T Podcast, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also see images as well as links to past episodes and all of those past episodes' is images and sources on our website, which is sowhatpodcast.com. Woo! Right. First things first, we gotta get down to business. Who is Dr. Lynn Hulse, the lovely interviewee of this episode? I'm going to tell you. Lynn is a textile historian, collector, and writer who has focused on embroidered textiles since 2004. She is a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of London and the Royal Historical Society and was formerly the archivist of the Royal School of Needlework and a visiting research fellow at the Victoria and Albert Museum. She has published widely on historic needlework and is the editor of The Needle's Excellency, English Raised Embroidery from 2018, and May Morris, Art and Life from 2017. Lynn is the co-founder and manager of Ornamental Embroidery, which specializes in the teaching and designing of historic needlework and runs workshops in museums, art galleries and historic houses across the UK. Students are introduced to the history of embroidered textiles through lectures and the study of original examples and are trained in a variety of stitch techniques including canvas, crewel, goldwork, silk shading, blackwork, whitework, raised work and appliqué. You can learn so many things my voice got raspy when I was saying that list. That's wild! Lynn has staged two exhibitions of ornamental embroidery students' work in Oxford, which was the 2017 The Needle's Excellency, English Raised Embroidery, which was at the Ashmolean Museum, and the winter 2021-22 exhibition The Needle's Art, Contemporary Hand Embroidery Inspired by an Early Tudor Pattern Book at the Bodleian Library. She is currently researching the development of art embroidery in the second half of the 19th century. Her book on the early history of the Royal School of Art Needlework, or as we know it, the Royal School of Needlework, will be published next year, which is so exciting. So clearly, she's the perfect person to discuss the early history of the RSN with today. Now, for some context, the Royal School of Needlework is a hand embroidery school based in Hampton Court Palace in London, so it is literally in a palace, castle, thing. It's wild. It's lit. We love to see it. It's considered the world's leading institution for teaching hand embroidery. We have the RSN to thank for a lot of the embroidery to have come out of the UK and even other countries in the last 100 years. One example is Erica Wilson, who I recently did a two-part episode about. She was educated at the RSN and then moved to the US, where she was a major influence on domestic stitching in the second half of the 20th century. Nowadays, the RSN has a number of classes, including degree courses, and runs a studio where embroidery is produced. I think I can say that no single institution has had as much influence on embroidery stitched in Europe and North America in the last century and a half than the Royal School of Needlework. So it's only right that so What has multiple episodes about it. Lynn and I talk about a few things I think you'll need some background information about. Lynn mentions the Mallet and Feller collections when discussing the Ashmolean Museum. Much of the Ashmolean Museum's collection of early modern embroidery came from the collections of Francis Mallet and Michael and Elizabeth Feller. Lynn and I also discussed the South Kensington Museum, which was the original name of what is now the Victoria and Albert Museum. And finally, Lynn mentions Candace Wheeler at the end of the episode. And Candace Wheeler was a major American interior designer and textile designer in the last decades of the 19th century and first decades of the 20th. Okay, that's a lot of information. Just one quick note before we start the interview. We had a few sound issues throughout the interview, so you'll hear the sound quality change slightly. I don't think it's distracting, and I don't think you will either. Let's get into the interview. Lynn, thank you so much for being here today. I feel like I've known you for forever. That's not true at all. I actually can't even remember how long I've known you for because of the pandemic, but I've always deeply respected and have been inspired by your work. So thanks for being
1: here. Oh, well, thank you so much for asking me. Yes, I was just trying to think of how many years it is we do know each other. I think actually we met in the V and in right. um, cloth workers because you were looking at some 17th century embroidery. And I said, are you Miss Bella Rosner by any chance? That wrote <gasps> about the casket black mug. <laughs> <And> that was <laughs> how it started. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, that is so right. Like late 2019. Little did we know what would happen right after that. But Absolutely. I'm really glad we got to meet in real life. Yeah. Back then.
1: Yeah, well, we've, we've had, had lots to... of fabulous discussions about needlework. So. And,
0: and this one, th- what what is so nice about this is everybody else gets to hear it as well. <laughs> gets to listen to this nice little chat. I'm going to learn so much. I think everybody's going to learn so much. How did you come to research historical needlework, specifically needlework from the arts and crafts movement and from the early modern period? Because those are two very different areas, but I feel like you have dug deep into both.
1: Um well, I think it's really a case of serendipity because, as you know, I mean, we've discussed this before. My background is actually as a musicologist; that's what I trained. Mm-hmm. So, I'm a music historian, and my doctoral thesis is actually um, exploring music in English noble households in the 16th and 17th centuries. So, that's the early modern side kind yes, of covered. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and I mean, I've been working in that field for about 20 years. When I enrolled at the Royal School of Needlework on the certificate course course because I'd always been a passionate embroiderer I mean I've stitched since about the age of five oh. and I wanted to to go and learn how to stitch properly so I went to the RSN and it sort of kind of fell into textiles from there and that was really because Elizabeth Elvin who was then the principal of the school discovered that I had worked as an archivist at Nottingham University and Cambridge University at various points in my career and she said oh that's interesting um well why don't you come and follow me and?" Took me into this room and opened up these cupboards and there were all these papers and she said, "Um, these need cataloguing. Would you be interested?" Ah! And so I got hooked at that point and <laughs> asked the fatal question of. To, um, oh, this institution's got a fascinating history, hasn't it? And there we took off from there. So she hired me one day a week to work on the collection. And, you know, we're talking about thousands of documents here, um, which probably were catalogued, you know, in the early years. But over the sort of years of the school moving through its various premises, whatever cataloguing system there had been had got lost and various documents, you know, as with all archives get lost along the way. Um, So I worked one day a week on the collections for about six years and alongside that I was co-curating exhibitions with my colleague Eva Hansen, who was in charge of the textile collection. So that was really where the career in textile started. So I suppose it's bringing together my two passions. I love Um, it! Yeah, and then when I left the RSN, that would have been in 2010, um, I set up ornamental embroidery with one of my colleagues who had trained at the RSN. That was Nikki Jarvis, um, who's a designer and embroiderer. And we launched ornamental embroidery because we were both interested in teaching historic needlework and really bringing together our sort of two areas of expertise, me as the sort of historian scholar and collector and she as the designer maker. So it was bringing mm-hmm. the two sides together And we were just very fortunate that our business launched at the Ashmolean and we were able to work on the mallet and feller collections. As you very well know, it's full of wonderful 17th century needlework. Mm -hmm. And so on the back of that, we worked on two major projects. That was the Needles' Excellency and the Needles' Art Exhibitions both of which were inspired by objects from that early modern period. In the case of the Needle's Excellency, all the raised work panels in the Ashmolean collection. And in the case of the Needle's art, a Tudor pattern book in the Bodleian Library.
0: Oh, oh, oh. Yes,
1: <laughs> but I, you know, having having piqued my interest at the RSN, of course, I became fascinated by the latter part of the nineteenth century. And while I was at the school, I'd already started working on the um, Handbook of Embroidery. I was produced a facsimile edition of that with a lengthy essay which explored the early history of the RSN. So that sort of you know. My appetite for for working on that, Um, and I at that stage as well. I'd also become um, a trustee at the William Morris Gallery, so that again brought me into that orbit of arts and crafts, looking at the Morris family and May Morris in particular. So I was actually at the gallery at the time of the May Morris exhibition and worked on the catalogue for that and the volume of essays. So you know, it was an opportunity really, really to sort of explore those various areas of the aesthetic movement and arts and crafts movement associated with the school. And so I have not looked back. I haven't gone back to musicology. I mean I, you know, I hear music uh-huh, and I think, you know, oh I'd love to be working back on that again. But this is this has just been such a ride and I'm you know thoroughly enjoying myself and I haven't got bored yet. So I just want to continue with it.
0: I love that. You switched, not only did you temporarily leave music behind you've also temporarily at least in this project left the early modern period behind I don't know if you ever expected to end up in the 19th century but here you are
1: I didn't and the extraordinary thing is with some of the archives I've looked at in the early stages of working on it was kind of like because it was the same families and I was there thinking am I working on the 17th century (laughs) today am I working on the 19th (laughs) century because you know, it just the same families kept coming up, um, so that, that was quite amusing. The people who are working with the early history of the school are from the English aristocracy, and it's you know many of the same families again. So that's that's been that's been very interesting coming back to those archives, but with a different hat on this time, like being amongst
0: old friends.
1: Yeah, quite extraordinary. I mean, as I said, I've always stitched, I've always done embroidery, so it's just lovely to be working on something that's. An interest and a passion and also being able to bring together theory and practice, history, mm-hmm. and scholarship and practice, because that to me is very, very important and my, in all my research is very much object led research because I want to understand why did they make things the way they made them? And what does that tell me about people in the past? Yes. So that's really, really important to me. Um, and it was the same when I was a musicologist. It was really just sort of bringing the skills that I learned as a music historian and applying those to textile history, but just jumping ahead 200 plus years.
0: That's so rad. It's all about the things and the stories those things tell. Can you tell us more about the early years of the Royal School of Needlework? Like, there are so many questions that can be asked. How was it developed, and by who, and why, like tell us tell us the tale if that's not too big of an
1: ask inevitably i got very interested in the early stages the start where did this institution come from and why should it have been set up at that stage in the 19th century um and the school was founded as you know in 1872 because we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of the institution this year it's amazing it is one of you know Hardly any other institution from that period to do with needlework has survived. Yes, Hand and Lock is not around. Morris and Co, well, you know, obviously the firm, as we know, has closed in... um, in the course of the 20th century but you know the rsn is still here still going strong 150 years later which is fantastic and you know it's a testament to the people who have been involved with the institution um but it was founded by a woman called lady victoria Welby, and um she's primarily known today as a pioneer of semiotics um oh and-
0: Yeah, I know, it's extraordinary.
1: I mean, she wrote, uh, uh, she developed a branch of philosophy known as Significs and published a number of books and articles on the subject. So that's for what she's, you know, that's what she's known about today. And, you know, there's a school of thought that follows her and there are a number of books have been written about her philosophical writings. Um, But it's really only in, you know, but now we're beginning to understand the pivotal role that she played in setting up and running the RSN in the 1870s. Um, and, you know, that role is really quite remarkable. I think to understand what inspired Welby to embark on setting up this project, one really needs to go back to her childhood. Um, she's the granddaughter of a Duke. So she's born for the aristocracy. Her grandfather mm. is the Duke of Rutland. Her godparents, I mean, can't get better than this, Queen Victoria, after whom name she's named, and Queen Victoria's mother, the Duchess of Kent. So, you know, you, you've got a great pedigree there. You've brought together both the aristocratic and the royal. And that is really significant when it comes then to setting up the school mm-hmm. and getting the levels of patronage that one needs to keep this institution on the road. Um Her childhood, her upbringing was completely unconventional uh, because very early on at the age of 10, she contracted scarlet fever and in fact, she nearly died from it. And her widowed mother was so, I think, concerned about her and concerned about her health that she decided the best thing to do to recuperate was to take her abroad because that was how she was going to recover. And. Between 1848 and 1855, mother and daughter, you know, 10-year-old right through to the age of 18, travelled across four continents, which is quite remarkable. Um, You know, they went to North and South America. They went to the Holy Land. They went to North Africa. They travelled through Spain and Portugal. Um, Quite, quite extraordinary. And through all of that period, Victoria kept a diary. And kept a journal, and in fact, she published her journal of her American tour. And one can, <clears throat> excuse me, see from that that she was passionate about design and passionate mm. about textiles because she writes about them at length. Um, so one can see it's already being fostered there throughout her childhood. Because you know, when they had leisure time, mother and daughter were stitching together. I mean, she was yeah. learning about literature and geography. Wasn't great at languages. Always said she was never very good at languages. Fabulous good musician, you, girl. Awesome.
0: Oh. Love that.
1: Oh, talented. Yeah. So... Um, so you know the background is is really there she was she dabbled in all kinds of needle arts um although i think embroidery was the one that she was certainly the most accomplished at and mm. in fact i mean you know people commenting about her in the 1870s said that she was one of the leading art workers of the period and she certainly was a very gifted designer as well so that's that's being fostered in childhood and her mother was an artist as well as being a poet so you know the background you know it was already I suppose it was in the genes in a sense that that this should come about this way.
0: So you have just beautifully explained Victoria Welby's kind of global art knowledge and influence. But what was her knowledge and her feeling about what was happening artistically in Britain at the time?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. And I think what one has to do is really go back to the early 19th century and have a look at what the major developments are during this period um, to understand the context in which she is setting the school in 1872. So I think one really needs to go back to... um, looking at the revival of decorative needlework in Britain dating from the late 1830s. Um, I mean, this is a period where we've got a number of different factors coming together. So you've got the Catholic emancipation, where Roman Catholics are allowed to practice in public again. You've also got the rise of the Oxford movement in the Anglican Church. So those two um, strands are coming together, which bring about a movement where there is a revival of interest in decorating the family of the church. So you're getting lavish vestments, um, lavish church furnishings. And that desire for beautifying the church is combined then with this interest in Gothic revival, which is a movement, as you know, starts in the middle of the 18th century. But Mm -hmm. it's that revival of interest really in Medieval art and architecture, and bringing that back to the fore. So, really, prior to the mid 1850s, this interest in decorative needlework is very much ecclesiastical, and one could see that in the work of somebody like Augustus Willoughby Pugin and his circle. So, it's starting off in ecclesiastical embroidery, but within a generation, it's jumped into looking at embroidery for the domestic interior. So, what's being done in church embroidery is then being applied to secular needlework
0: Mm. now how does that
1: affect Welby well what's really interesting there is that Victoria Welby's husband Sir William Welby is the cousin of Augustus Welby Pugin they're connected. She's marrying into that family that has that Pugin connection. Now, all mm. right, Pugin is dead before she marries, marries Welby, but the connection continues on because um, one of Pugin's um, sons um, you know, is continuing in the Gothic Revival style. Um, and Victoria Welby has, for instance, woodwork done by him for her house when she marries William Welby Aww. so that's really interesting also one of her great friends is one of the second generation gothic revivalists Anastasia Dolby who's one of the leading figures of church embroidery and this is the woman that she decides to bring in to help her with setting up the school mm-hmm. of art Work. so this is the person who becomes superintendent of the school So that's one side of it. Now, at the same time as you've got the Gothic revival going on, there's also the design reform movement. And, you know, this is a period when um, artists, manufacturers and consumers are embroiled in this great debate over um, economics and aesthetics of design and industry. And it's really in particular looking at the indiscriminate use of three-dimensional patterns on two-dimensional surfaces. So looking at how you put a three-dimensional design onto a fabric or a wallpaper so think of berlin work that's your typical example of three-dimensional oh, design. Yeah. And that's what, you know, these new artists are trying to get away from that. So there's a whole um, reformation in a sense. There's a new design vocabulary that's being compiled. And you can see that it's enshrined in Owen Jones' work, you know, The Grammar of Ornaments, which is published in 1856. Now, yeah. again, that connects with Victoria Welby. She knows about Owen Jones' work. She'd been to the Great Exhibition in 1851, so she'd seen Owen Jones' interior of the Great Exhibition. Um, She's interested in what he has to write. She owns copies of his books. So that, again, is informing her um, in what she is doing. So she has all those strands are coming together, which you can see then bringing together design reform and Gothic revival. It's those that lead to the developments that eventually then becomes this revival of interest in decorative needlework, or what we would know um, as art embroidery. Aha.
0: Uh-huh. Thank you. Brilliant explanation. When does this all get going? When does Victoria Wellby actually begin the school of art
1: embroidery? I mean, the school officially, as you know, we celebrate the opening on the 5th of November because that's Mm -hmm. the earliest date that there is in the school records. That's when the admissions register commences. So that's the sort of official date for the opening. Um, But she had started thinking about school a few months prior to that, and she set it up in her drawing room. In her own home with four embroiderers just to see whether you know she was experimenting to see whether there was actually something that could be made out of this and they were experimenting using medieval style designs to see whether it could be made into a commercial venture and she sort of sought the opinions of various people including madeline Wyndham, who's a great patron of the arts um and the designer gertrude jekyll to see whether they thought it was a good idea mm. and they both said yes you know there was something in this that could make a business out of this. Um, so she goes ahead and she sets up the school. and as you know, I mean because I'm sure we had Dr. Susan K. Williams on mm-hmm. very, very on, early on very this early school. yes um, and she talked about the twin aims of the school. so it was set up first of all to revive ornamental needlework for secular purposes. Mm. And that is a really important point, I think, to me, because when Victoria sets up the school, she doesn't want to be doing church needlework because she felt it was so important that she didn't take work away from the convent schools. Ah. So, so she really wants this to be work for the home and under her stewardship, that really is the case. So the school isn't really taking up church embroidery until the early 1880s. I mean, there might have been one or two examples prior to that, but certainly, you know, the sort of formal taking on of church needlework really doesn't start until Victoria really steps back from having a hand in the running of the school. Um, And then her other aim, of course, was to set up an institution where women of um, gentlewomen status, who were in reduced circumstances financially, could earn a living. But she's very, very much at pains at pointing out this is not a charity so although it might seem philanthropic Mm -hmm. in what she's doing she didn't want it to be seen that this was just a charitable institution it wasn't that it had to make enough money from the sale of the embroideries that it produced to cover the wages of the workers the wages of the staff um, who are in charge like the workroom mistress the head of the design studio the superintendent Um, it had to pay for the premises and all its overheads and Mm -hmm. to pay for materials and any profits that there were could be plowed back into the school not that there really was much in the way of profits but it's not a commercial organization like Morris & Co but it's not a charity either so it kind of falls between the two.
0: Ah very interesting and somehow makes a lot of sense to me that this was founded right when it was founded because it just kind of matches the environment that I know of in terms of what needlework was being produced like you have all of these charity schools, which are very much charity yeah. as a and and used as a way to teach poor orphan girls or you know poor non orphan girls how to stitch and basically use a sampler as a CV for future employment. But at the same time, tell me if I'm wrong here. People, you know, Berlin woolwork had been the thing for quite a while at this point, and I can imagine that there was also like a bit of frustration what, three decades in to berlin Woolwork being the all end all of domestic stitching that you wanted to, you know, not only is there this increased interest in quote unquote Christian or non-Christian, I guess, uh, charitable organizations and kind of institutions, but also this kind of desperate need to bring back some skills that were lost in the decades
1: following the popularity of berlin (laughs) Woolwork. absolutely I mean it, you know, one of the reasons that Victoria's setting up the school is to get away from cheap manufactured textiles mm. so she wants to get back to the handmade and that's very much as you know the ethos behind the arts and crafts movement is getting back to handmade the individual at work and you know one piece not being exactly the same as another and so on um, but it's also this moving away from the fashionable Berlin work which was really killing skill um, totally in terms of needlework and given where Victoria will be coming from i mean as somebody who's passionate about gothic revival passionate about medieval textiles and so on you can see that um she would want to set up an institution where you really were reviving the old skills and that's why she brings in somebody like anastasia dolby to help mm-hmm. her with that because dolby you know had written these book the book um church embroidery modern in 1867 and then another book that she'd written on um ecclesiastical vestments the following year in the church and and was somebody who had had her own school and had also set up her own um, exhibition space and was restoring medieval vestments. So Um, she has um, that experience that she's bringing to the table Um, And Victoria Welby is making use of that. I mean, that said, Victoria Welby very much has her hands on the tiller all the way through. So Mm -hmm. even though she's bringing on um, Anastasia Dolby as the superintendent of the school, Victoria Welby is the honorary manager. So all the decision making process is Victoria Welby, it's not Anastasia Dolby. Dolby's in charge of the kind of day-to-day running, you know, making sure the students are being taught, um, that the materials are coming in, that the work is progressing. But Victoria Welby, you know, if she's not on the spot, if she's back home in Lincolnshire, which is where her husband's estate is, um, you know, she's being written to and she's writing back to school on a daily basis, checking on what the pupils are learning in their... You know nine five hour lessons that they have before they qualify as a worker at the school she's corresponding with all the textile manufacturers and um, thread makers mm-hmm. so that she can produce both the cloths and the threads that she wants that are based on historic um, models, because that's what she wants to bring back to use. She's using natural dyes for dyeing the threads. That's very important to her. And you can see again, that's really mirroring what's going on with like mm-hmm. Morris and Co. and other, other companies at this time. Um, she's also she's the person who's dealing with the clients because most of the clients are from her social class. Um, yes. So these are the people she's corresponding with. She's also corresponding with the designers. She's dictating what should be in the timetable for teaching. Um, And also every piece of work produced by the workroom went on the train up to Lincolnshire. She vetted it. And if anything needed to be amended, she changed it and then it was sent back to the school before it could be allowed out to a customer. So she's completely hands-on.
0: Okay, wow. She's doing it all. I have so many questions. So you say that students had to do nine-hour, nine, five-hour courses. Yeah. Um my first question within this is what were the courses in and my second question is so every single person who took these courses were they were then employed by the royal school or did they also go out into the world and do stitching elsewhere?
1: Okay, so I think um, as far as the curriculum of the pupils is concerned, um, during those nine five-hour lessons, they're taught a number of different techniques, and um, they're taught to work samplers in cruel work, silk work, and appliqué using many of the stitches that are actually found in the school's handbook of embroidery, which is published in 1880. So that gives you a good idea of the core stitches which would have been you know obviously are common to church work as well so that's what's being taught at the school though I think the interesting thing that needs pointing out really that even though there are a lot of stitches in that book and there are a lot of stitches in many of the stitch manuals that are being produced from the middle of the 19th century going into the early 20th century art embroiderers actually have a very small vocabulary of stitches. That they use oh. in the belief that the aesthetic aspect of the object that you're creating is more is more important than the technical aspect. Mm-hmm. So it's does it look good rather than is this showing off how brilliant I am at stitching? Um so there's a core of stitches that are used. So we have um split stem satin stitch french knot long and short and laid work those are the essential stitches that you'll find in art embroidery
0: so what else characterizes the art embroidery taught at the school
1: design is the most important and that for Victoria Welby also was extremely important so she was really concerned that the women at the school knew about design and that she had a core of designers and people who could interpret design in order to be able to transfer those designs onto the fabric and then to be able to interpret that and stitch so she was very keen that they were educated in that way Mm. um then there's colour. She's really, really you know, hot on what colours they're going to use because there are conventions on using that. And then the materials, they've got to be materials that are true to you know, whatever the object is that you're making, got to be suitable. And in fact, she's the person who brings Japanese gold into Britain because she happens to know the British ambassador oh. to Japan and she asks Sir Harry Parks if he will... Arrange for gold thread to come from Japan and Japanese silks to come into Britain. So it's Victoria Welby as the distribution point for Japanese gold thread initially before it goes out to the various workrooms of reports used by companies like Liberty and Morrison Co and so on. Because she's bringing it in in 1863, which is really early. Um, As far as the training of the girls is concerned, um, I mean, these are, you know, we're talking about a wide range, range of ages here so the youngest hmm. people was 10 well now, that was is- terribly young it was only because she was the younger sister younger sibling okay. of two older sisters who were employed at the school and Victoria Welby was very concerned about the family and felt it was important you know this philanthropic hmm. side coming out um that this little girl was given some kind of training that she could then go on to make a career in embroidery um and the oldest people was in her 60s so you know this is a range of women some of whom had worked as governesses because as you know many gentlewomen went into becoming governesses but there mm-hmm. were more governesses than there were jobs so you know people had these women of this rank had to be employed somehow um but some of them were widows um or husbands who were you know have been laid off from work i mean they're all you know People who had come from families where a husband or a father or a brother was a member of the church, member of the armed forces, was a lawyer, teacher. So, you know, they're the sort of middling sort in a sense. They're not working mm-hmm. class girls. Um, then they're given training. If after the first two lessons they're not good enough, they're told they're not good enough and mm-hmm. they're given their feedback and they're not <laughs> expected to stay on. They are good enough, they get put on the books. Um, As far as um, how the workers are sort of paid for their labours, workers are paid by the piece initially she paid mm. by the hour she quickly worked out that it was not a good idea because oh. if you're quite slow you obviously get paid more money for a piece than you would do if you're fast about it so um, they're paid by the piece not by the hour and this means then that the you know really accomplished workers at the school are earning you know, between one and two pounds per week and that compares favourably with, with what the China painters at Minton's for example are earning mm. um, and the school is also um grading its work as first class work second class work and third class oh. work um, so when you are paying for a piece of embroidery you know as the customer well you'll pay more obviously if it's first class piece of work than it would be if it were a third class piece of work oh, my goodness. um yeah. as far as employing the girls afterwards i mean The workroom was too small to have everybody come in and work at the school. So many of the workers are working from home and bringing the pieces into the school to have them vetted at various points to make sure that they're on the right track in terms Mm. of what needs to be produced. And it was the school's aim that it would employ everybody who had been trained. That wasn't always possible because it depended whether they were on, you know, a um, month where well, there maybe weren't that many orders coming in, especially mm. during the London season. Yes, there are lots of people around in London, but when the aristocracy so go off to the country, then there are not lots of orders being placed. So mm. they have sort of fallow periods and then very, very busy periods. Um, So they couldn't always guarantee that everybody would be employed on a full-time basis, but they did their best to make sure that anybody who'd been trained by them then got some form of employment from the school. What sorts of things were these people stitching? Oh, a whole range of objects for the mm. home. So, you know, if we think on the larger scale, we're looking at portieres, door curtains, window curtains, counterpanes, bed hangings, chairs and um, covers. So, seat covers, back covers, seat mm. covers, um, bell pulls screens of all different varieties so we're talking about room screens banner screens face screens far screens so many yeah so a whole range of objects for the home the kinds of things that would have been covered by berlin work Mm -hmm. are not being covered by decorative ornamental needlework Mm -hmm. Um, but they were also embroidering clothing as well. So there are a lot of court dresses, for example, that they're doing uh-huh. from quite early on. And Victoria Welby herself was having jackets and, um, you know, skirts embroidered by the school. Um, But they did a lot of court dresses, so, you know, and and capes and Mm. things like that. So they're making clothes for um, Queen Victoria and Queen Victoria's daughters, Princess Louise, Princess Helena, and both of whom were involved with the school.
0: Okay, then that leads on to my next question very well, which is the, what is the royal connection? We call it the Royal School of Needlework. How did that happen? Well, when the school was set
1: up, it was called the School of Art arch needlework mm. so that was mm. where I had decided its name should be and when she set it up she set it up with a group of women who were interested in the institution and they're quite significant figures so this is before Princess Helena formally joins the institution although she had already expressed an interest in it but if we think about first of all the women who are the founding members so we've got Lady Marion Alford, who becomes vice president of the school. Marion Alford is um, one of Victoria's neighbours in Lincolnshire. She's incredibly knowledgeable about needlework. She wrote that wonderful tome, Needlework as Art. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's an embroiderer and a designer. So a really good person to have on board. Um, Madeline Wyndham, who is a patron of the Holland Park Art Circle, who Mm is, you know friends with lots of the designers who eventually would come to work for the school, people like um, William Morris, Walter Crane, Edward Byrne-Jones, G.F. Bodley, Fred Leighton. So that's very much her circle. She's bringing Mm -hmm. that side into the school. Um, Lady Charlotte Schreiber, who is a major collector and connoisseur, who's very interested in women's education and is also an embroiderer. Um, the Marchioness of Waterford, Louisa Waterford, who's actually um, Victoria Welby's cousin, who's a pre-Raphaelite artist and who's ah! her own work. Um, mm-hmm. Dorothy Neville, um, who is Lily Dorothy Neville, who is also a collector, but um, was on very friendly terms with the South Kensington Museum. And that is key for the school because That's the is very much associated with the museum and with the National Art Training School which was you know, sort of set up, um, well, goes back to the late 1830s, really as part of the design reform movement. So really looking at the education of designers. Um, but it becomes um, under um, the control of Henry Cole, who is the director of the South Kensington Museum. He also runs the National Art Training School. So that becomes a hub for the school. And we can talk about that in a bit. And yeah. then Andrew Jekyll, who, you know, Everybody remembers today as a garden designer, but she actually started off her career as an embroidery designer and was what? designing for all sorts of well-known figures um, in the early 1870s, right through to the early 1880s. What a crew! What, a, what crew, a crew! Indeed, of
0: fancy accomplished ladies.
1: Yeah, so these are the women who are kind of in the background advising her, though you know, Victoria Welby is completely running the institution, which she Mm. does pretty well single-handedly for the first couple of years with the input um, of the council, which is set up um, in the spring of 1873. So Princess Helena, who's the third daughter of Queen Victoria, had grown up, um, obviously, at court at a time when Victoria Welby is around, because when Victoria Welby's mother dies under absolutely dreadful circumstances in the Holy Land, um. Victoria at that stage becomes an orphan and she's passed around various members of the family. But then when she reaches a majority at the age of 21, she's taken into the Duchess of Kent's household. Um, so she's living with her godmother. And so she's in the company of Princess Helena, Princess Louise, Princess Alice. Um, and she's very much treated like another granddaughter in effect. Wow. Um, so she has this royal connection with them she becomes a uh, maid of honour to Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria was very sorry to lose her in 1863 when she married. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the Queen realised that, that she'd had such a disrupted childhood and, you know, sort of into her adult life that actually having that stability of marriage was probably a very good thing for Victoria Wellby. And certainly, I mean, her husband provided that environment for which she could experiment with, you know, first of all, with the school and then with her philosophical connections. Um, So Helena had expressed an interest, Princess Helena, in the school, and she formally becomes president of it in the spring of 1873. And it's at that point that the council is established. And so you have this formal body that is helping Victoria Welby to make decisions. Mm. And it's, in, at some point, then um, the decision is made. It's actually sort of t- through the course of 1874 and early 1875, um, a decision is made to have a royal patron, and Queen Victoria is asked if she would be the royal patron, which she duly consents to do, and she oh, becomes royal patron when the school moves to its third premises, because the school has moved six times in its history. Oh my God! A lot in the early stages, because you know, I oh, said, when it started off, it's one one room over a <laughs> shop in Sloane street it then moves within a few months ticking over a whole house in Sloane street uh-huh. because it's expanding at quite a rate um and then by the summer of 1875 it's moved into what's called the belgian annex of the 1862 buildings from the 1862 exhibition on exhibition road and it is that point oh, that nice. queen victoria formally becomes patron of the institution but then In 1877, um, the Princess and Prince of Wales also become patrons of the school. So it has that royal connection, which, of course, has continued through to today. So it's called the Royal School of Art Needlework from 1875 onwards. And then it drops art from its title in 1922, when the Association of Art and Needlework was no longer seen as being... You know, it was kind of old-fashioned at that stage. and We'd moved right. on from art furniture, art pottery, art glass, and whatever. So it drops the art from its title, and it just becomes World School Leadwork or RSN, as we all know it.
0: So Victoria Welby, clearly the mover and groover, the leader, the head of the posse at the very beginning of the RSN. So how long was she there for, and what sort of lasting impact did she have, both during her time there and after,
1: once she moved on to I don't know what? Well, um, she contributes in a number of ways to the institution. I think one could say that the dates which she's normally associated with the school in a really stewardship, driving way, mm-hmm. it's really 1872 to 1877. And oh, then kind sure. of steps back in 1877. So that's when she's moving away from her, really sort of a deep involvement with needlework to moving to her um, interest in linguistics and philosophy and it's from that point mm-hmm. on that that's very much her focus um, but she remained on the council so when she started at the school she's the honor- honorary manager that's her position at the school and mm-hmm. it would not have been established if it hadn't been for her money and her husband's money because they yes. the started off so mm-hmm. that's really important so she has that managerial role Role between 1872 and around 1874, because very sadly, Anastasia Dolby died within three months of the school wow. being set up, which just, you know, throws power in the works and um really caused an awful lot of issues for Victoria Well because she couldn't find somebody who was of the skill of Dolby really to step in. Oh, no. So she has to step up to the plate and effectively manage the school, as well as having all her duties as the wife of, you know, a sitting MP. Lord Lieutenant of the county, and has all her family and local commitments as well. You know, as a woman Mm. of the aristocracy, Um, so she's having to deal with that. Um, but I think you can see, you know, that there she is in charge of an institution that starts as, you know, something going on in the drawing room of her house to by 1880, when the school is producing the handbook of embroidery, it has become the headquarters of decorative stitchery in Great Britain. I mean, what an amazing wow. achievement um, totally. for her to have produced that sort of institution in such a short space of time. Um I think if I were to say, well, what are her major contributions to the school? Well, for the setting up of it in the first place, the fact that it's actually survived all this, really yeah. quite, quite a testament to her. The fact that it expanded under her managership, you know, when she started, she had 28 girls working for her in the first few months. You know, by the time you get to 1875, there are over 100 women on the books. It's moved into the Belgian Annex. It's opposite the South Kensington Museum. So it's right in the heart of the science and um, arts museums, that whole museums and colleges area in South Kensington, which is really important. Um, she's overseeing the artistic direction of the school so it's not only a contemporary school of needlework and she's involving women designers in this as well which I think is really important and is something that doesn't kind of gets glossed over so Mm. she's bringing women designers in as well as of course all the important male figures that one associates with the school Um, but there's also the historic side so they're recreating um, historic needlework and if you think of Creole embroidery in the Jacobean style it's the RSM that brings that back Mm. Fashion. and that's victoria Welby who's in charge of that she also starts their program of well initially it's restoration it's not conservation um so they're doing things that we probably wouldn't think were appropriate today like oh, no. adding bits of embroidery from the 17th century which they you know anyway bob will we'll not go into too much detail about that um also she is there when major exhibitions are taking place at the school mm. at the 1873 exhibition of decorative art needlework which is so Important. Um, that's her brainchild, and oh. it, that's what she introduces. She's also on the subcommittee for deciding on which pieces go to the Philadelphia Centennial. Uh, oh, wow, yeah, in 1876.
0: Okay. And 1876,
1: and also, I mean, the school's first sort of major exhibitions, the international exhibition in London in 1874. Victoria Welby is very much in charge of that exhibition, and several of her pieces were on display in wow. that exhibition. And they were very much lauded by the press, those pieces. Um, Also, you know, she's setting up, it's not only professional embroiderers who are being taught. I mean, I hate using the word professional and amateur because, you know, what is the distinction between the two? One's paying, one isn't, because there's so many brilliant amateur embroiderers. whose quality of work is just incredible. And Victoria Welby would come into that category as well. But, you know, she... Setting up classes for amateur embroiderers, they've introduced prepared kits at that stage, so that you could buy kits ah. as well. Um, and then, whilst she's still at the school, the branch schools are set up in Glasgow and Edinburgh in 1879, 1881. There's also this association with the Royal Irish School of Art Needlework. So there's a lot going on during that mm. period which she's involved. All right, she's taking more of a back seat after 1877. And um, that's because of sort of the fallout from the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, oh uh, yeah, which is a bit of a, a you know sort of a black spot in the history of the school. Um, oh, yeah, the hot gas, the hot goss. Yeah, they didn't. They, they did. It wasn't quite as successful financially. I mean, in artistic terms, uh-huh. incredibly successful, but in financial terms, wasn't. Um, and so there's a bit of a sort of breakdown in the council um after the exhibition as to you know sort of what direction the school's going to go in and how it's going to be run financially. Thank you so much for kind of
0: setting the scene and establishing the context of Victoria Welby's influence and kind of lasting impact. Is there anything about the RSN, the early days of the RSN that we haven't talked about that you want to bring up? Um I suppose we haven't talked about the
1: two major exhibitions. Tell Um, me all about them please. Well, the 1873 exhibition, I mean, that's that's quite extraordinary in timing terms. Within three months of setting up the school, she suddenly has this idea that she wants to spread the knowledge of what had been done and what could be done mm. with decorative needlework to produce something that can be described as worthy of the name art. So she has this idea that she wants to bring together historic needlework. And she contacts Henry Cole at the South Kensington Museum and wants to have the exhibition there in the loan galleries. Because, as you probably know, Isabella, the museum had these loan galleries where it would bring mm-hmm. in temporary exhibitions, partly because it you know whilst it was collecting objects, it was still in the process of collecting. So it was great for them to be able to bring in objects that didn't belong necessarily to the museum, but might at some point be gifted to the museum or acquired by the museum um initially she got a bit of a negative response from henry cole but then she talks to princess helena and says i'm I'm not getting anywhere is there any chance that you or your husband prince prince christian could speak to him so after sort of royal intervention yes henry cole agrees that the exhibition can go ahead (laughs) Um, and what is extraordinary to my mind is that within the space of six weeks from when they have their first major committee meeting of all the people who are going to be involved in finding the lenders for this exhibition and deciding what should be chosen for it, within the space of six weeks, they managed to assemble a collection of nearly 700 objects, <gasps> dating from the 9th to the 18th centuries, oh from over God. 150 <laughs> lenders from across Great Britain and Northern Europe to lend to this exhibition. I mean, what an achievement is that? That's just absolutely extraordinary. Victoria Welby had to take a bit of a back seat um, at this stage because Anastasia Dolby had died and somebody needed to manage the school. But she's controlling behind the wings, you know, and she's making sure that she knows what's coming into the exhibition, what she can use in the workroom to create objects that she can then sell. Um, and she knows many of the lenders as well.
0: That is so, so crazy. Yeah, the speed. So, the speed.
1: Yeah, the, the speed. speed. Oh my destroyed. god! But so, what does it say about this group of women um, that they had that pull, mm-hmm. and that Kensington mm-hmm. Museum had that pull to get really. these objects? Which you know, these these lenders. Um, they were on loan for 6 months um from so 5 months from may through to the end of october the ending of the exhibition it's not absolutely clear when it ended but it opens you know at the end of may so they have it all through the summer into the the early autumn um so that's that's a major exhibition and it you know it affects so much what the school then decides to do both in terms of its historic um objects and the the restoration side. Um, So that's one pivotal moment, I think, in the history. It's also, I mean, it's, it's an exhibition that gets a lot of press coverage. So mm-hmm. it really, it really puts the RSN out there as this is an institution that's going places. Mm. Um, the press are asking the questions, right, having put this exhibition together, what's the school going to do now? We're all oh, eagerly oh, awaiting okay. to see what's going to go from, you know, from here onwards. Okay. Um, and so it's it's post that, that, for instance, first of all, they're asked to take part in the international exhibition, because, again, it's coal It's the South Kensington Museum is involved in that. So... You know, um, Alan Somerley Cole, who helps with the 1873 exhibition, asks Victoria Welby to contribute in 1874, which she does. But it's on the back of that, then, that there are lots of changes coming about as to who's going to advise them in terms of design. Um, and an art committee is then set up and various are great and good are consulted. There's all sorts of p- problems with the setting up of the art committee. And I won't go into details of that because this, this is a major story. But mm-hmm. um, it's from that point onwards then that they're really starting to work with people like William Morris, um, Edward Byrne Jones, uh, Walter Crane. I mean, you know, Victoria Welby had wanted to work with Morris right from the start Um, And in fact, the agent that she worked with, he helped her to set up the school, you know, dealt with all the practical aspects of finding the room, getting the furniture and so on. He was an art furniture maker and in fact provided the depot from where the objects were sold initially because there wasn't room in the workroom to sell objects as Um, well. So, yeah, so... um, yeah, so you know she had really from the start had thought about working with Morris. I think she was hoping that the school might be outworkers for Morris and Co. or Morris, Morris Marshall Faulkner and Co. Of course, as it was at that stage, that didn't come about. But by eighteen seventy-five, I think the school was well enough established, um, and it was making its mark. That Morris and Co. was quite happy to be associated with it, and it was great from Morris's point of view because, you know, here they are; they get an invitation to go to Philadelphia because the school by this stage. Is known not only nationally but internationally. Wow. So an invitation to Philadelphia to exhibit both in the main building and in the women's pavilion. And um Morris is happy to go along with this because I'm of course sure. you know, it's all at the expense of the school. He can send you know some objects out and it's it's good for his company. And it was great for the school because in artistic terms, you know, it really sets it on the international stage. It influences the development of art needlework in the US because Candace Wheeler, who you will know all about. I know all um, about her. Yeah. Attends the exhibition and is wowed by it. And in fact, um, produces an embroidery which is inspired by one of the embroideries designed by Princess Louise herself um, and sets up her schools of needlework, which are run by women who have been trained at the rsn so yeah, american exactly. schools you know like boston philadelphia new york chicago san francisco they're all run by women who were rsn trained taking out rsn designs to teach and also there were parroting of you know the handbook of embroidery was parroted in the u.s um and you know, you talk about oh, Kensington Stitch, when you hear about Kensington Stitch, that's the RSN way of embroidery, <sighs> that's what's being taught. So that, you know, under her stewardship, that is what is happening over that eight-year period, That that is what she has achieved, even though she might not be controlling, you know, the players on the board by the late 1870s, but she set up that environment in which the school can develop and go to great strengths, really
0: what is your favorite needleworked object or objects sorry in advance I know it's like the worst question in the world it's the best for me because I don't have to decide and because people get to hear some really great answers but I am sorry that I have had to make you make a decision
1: oh gosh well that's a really difficult question (laughs) Isabella because I have such eclectic taste in needlework. yes I could have chosen something from you know early medieval period right up to Oh, at some point in the 20th century, you know. Oh, just such an extraordinary number know. of people. That's it, you know. All right, I'll, I'll choose a couple. Okay. Um, which, going back to your first question about, you know, my passion for early modern and passion for arts and crafts or, you know, later 19th century. So I think I'm going to choose... The sacrifice of Isaac, the raised mm-hmm. work panel from 1673 at the Ashmolean, which I just think is the most extraordinary piece, and it was the piece that informed our exhibition, The Needle's Excellency. It was the sort of springboard <laughs> for <laughs> that exhibition because we we took elements from it and taught it as a as a raised work class, and it was from that that the, the casket project developed. And I just think it's an extraordinary piece because just the sheer skill of the embroiderer but mm. also it's the elements that you don't see like the hand of Abraham behind Isaac the, the wooden hand that you don't see yeah. that's there and then I'm the beaks and yes. the birds as oh, well which beaks? are just the beaks which are just extraordinary which are actually real linnets I mean that just was my jaw dropped when Mary Brooks told me yeah they're actually real birds yeah we should they're just say this like, formation the- for so what listeners
0: um yes this piece of needlework 1673 includes in it two birds with flappy wings you'll see it on the social media pages but the the beaks of the birds are real you, that's absurd like uh, i mean it's amazing but you're that just you are not getting that anywhere at any point so this is really a stupendous and very unique thing
1: yeah, it is, and I just love the you know sort of the four flowers that you get in each corner because it's mm. really sort of that. It kind of brings you back to the cabinet of curiosities, you know, and that whole idea of collecting single objects,
0: totally. Uh,
1: sort of being you know, a female equivalent of that male idea of the the curios, mm. um, and just just the sheer vibrancy of the whole thing. I mean, raised work is one of those. I think it's a marmite technique. You either like it or loathe it, yes. and there are many late 19th century embroiderers like Mae Morris, for instance. You absolutely loathed it and couldn't understand why anybody yeah. would all this time creating these needle lace um slips that you're adding to the embroidery. But I just I just love the chaos and I love the fact that it is an portion as well. Um yeah, it's it's just the most extraordinary period. And it's I think I suppose from a historic point of view as well, where it sits in terms of British history, in terms of the English Civil War, and because that's all a passion going back to a previous life, a previous career. So it it has all that, you know, element to it as well, which I'm really interested in. Um, As far as the 19th century goes, so many pieces of arts and crafts or aesthetic movement that I could choose. Um, But I think I'd have to say probably my top piece is Walter Crane's being jacked or four panels screen. When he created for the Philadelphia Centennial it's when he first gets employed by the Royal School and in fact he becomes you know one of the major designers of the school right through to the early 1900s it's um, you know it's the story of the vain jackdaw who likes plucks a couple of peacock feathers and puts them in his tail oh. because he wants to okay. be something special mm-hmm. um, and the screen it's just an amazing tour to force because it's It's very much aesthetic movement in that it's got that... you know it's not symmetrical so it it fits that criteria it's got the flowers that you'd expect to find in the 1870s you know it's got lilies it's got the japanese elements to it so it's got this mon design all around the edge and it's got carp in the water at the bottom the peacock feathers of course which one associates with aestheticism and it's just exquisitely stitched in Mm -hmm. that the school um, introduced this technique where when they stitched in wool they did highlights in silk so the eye eyes on the peacock feathers are highlighted in silk and they just pop out at you and it's absolutely amazing it's just such an extraordinary design and it was one of Walter Crane's most popular designs I mean it was sold right through to the early 1900s and in fact the Duke of Westminster owned four Bain Jackdaw screens because he loved the design so (laughs) yeah
0: what do you think the role of needlework is in
1: today's world the classic so what question the what question indeed um I think I, 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 that's happened in a number of different ways actually Isabel I've been thinking quite a bit about this since she sort of framed the question um and sent it to me and well I think first of all, There's very much, there's a revival of interest in making Mm -hmm. and the buying of handmade objects, isn't there? And I think, I mean, there's no doubt that the COVID pandemic has contributed greatly to that. I mean, one only needs to look at social media pages. Oh my goodness, how much embroidery is on Instagram now and for sale through Etsy and so on. So I think that being at home, having a bit more time um and maybe i think it's linked to the cathartic experience of stitch as well which i think is so important i mean it was one of the reasons for instance it took me to the royal school in 2003 i wanted something that was a bit of relaxation from doing academic research who would have thought within eight weeks i'd just be doing a different type of academic research that wasn't the intention um but uh yeah so i think there's that cathartic aspect to it Mm. um and you know, you're an embroiderer, you know what it's like. I mean, I know if I've got a difficult thing that I've got to write, if I pick up a piece of embroidery, I just don't think. I'm just there yeah, yeah. at the moment stitching. It's just that... It takes you away. I mean, I, I always sort of think along the lines of what Lady Julia Carew, who was taught, um, one of the amateur embroiderers taught at the RSN. And she actually, I mean, just, just to quote what she said, she said that she saw needlework as a panacea for the bustle and fatigue of everyday life. Mm. And applying her needle was a cathartic experience which soothed the mind, dulled mental anxieties, absorbed the worries of day of the day and brought a good healthy sleep at night. And I like to think of that oh, as being, you know, one of the important factors of of needlework. But I think there are a couple of other things that I would add. I think, mm. you know, today one sort of thinks about protest and conflict as well. And having, you know, how I many, obviously you can tell from my accent, I come from Northern Ireland originally. And I was thinking of this in the lines of, you know, the conflict textiles project yes. initiative um, that was set up with Roberta Batchage and um, the Derry City Council Heritage where they are creating textiles that help to come to terms with trauma mm-hmm. um, looking back to the troubles in Northern Ireland and I think that's a very interesting area and one can see that and I know you've already sort of showcased that in earlier episodes of the So What podcast, you know, this idea of the opaleras, for instance, in Chile and you know, various other textiles associated with, with conflict and strife. And I think that's a really important outlet. Again, it comes back to that sort of cathartic side somehow mm. coming to terms. Um, and then I suppose as an historian, well, I have to come back to the object-led research as well, yeah, because for me, as a teacher and as somebody who's interpreting the past, actually doing the stitching is a way to come to terms with that. So I can understand how the work was created. It helps me to understand the sort of social, the cultural, even the economic, religious, as it might be in certain contexts, mm-hmm. reasons for what made people tick.
0: Yeah, you're doing field research. That's how I always think about it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an archaeological approach, isn't it? Um, yeah. Ooh. So, yeah, and I feel that that's really important, the archaeology of it. I've always felt that. So, you know, I think really, really getting into, you know, you want to see, I want to see the back of the embroidery. I want to have a go at creating that stitch. Why is it done in that way? What can it tell me? You know, you know that yourself from the 17th century, you know, from looking at metal threads, how much metal thread we use so much more today when we're creating the stitches than would have been used in the 17th century, for instance. Mm -hmm. Why should that be? What does that tell us about the economics of a period? So there are all sorts of questions that, that come out of this, the stitch experience that are so important.
0: Finally, how can people learn more about your work? And do you have anything you would like to promote?
1: Okay, well, people can learn about ornamental embroidery through our website. So it's www.ornamentalembroidery.com. And also we're on social media. So we're on Twitter occasionally at OE Stitch (laughs) um, and also on Instagram. And I suppose in terms of promoting, well, yes, it's the book which is, you know, finally going to come out in 2023. It seems like forever. Yay! I've been working on it. So it's I've finally got the sorted out the title for it as well. So it's Reviving the Art of Embroidery, Lady Victoria Welby and the founding of the Royal School of Needlework, 1872 to 1881. So congratulations!
0: Yeah. It's on its way. <laughs> Yay! Lynn, what a pleasure it has been. I have learned so much. So thank
1: you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you about our passions.
0: (laughs) Hello again. That was a hefty, info-filled episode, right? So good. Thank you to Lynn for sharing her knowledge with all of us. It's really interesting to learn about the origins of an institution which has influenced embroidery all over the world for 150 years. I'm going to keep my conclusion short here as this is already a really long episode. I'll focus on the origins of the RSN and its connection to women's work. The Royal School of Needlework was partially founded to give employment to genteel women who needed to make a living. There's a lot to dig into there, including the very obvious connection between the upper class and embroidery, a theme which does indeed come up a lot when one researches historical embroidery. But I'm going to focus more on the women's work part of this. The RSN was far from the first institution to give women, especially those from the elite, employment. There is a fascinating parallel between the RSN and apprenticeship of women in early modern London in the 17th and 18th centuries. Back then, some women from the gentry and the daughters of artisans were contracted into apprenticeships in order to learn skills in a formal way, which in turn led to the opportunity to become a member of a London guild and to own their own business, if they completed their apprenticeship, that is. There has been a lot of very recent scholarship on the subject of women's work, of girls and women being formally contracted to learn the skills that would give them gainful employment and self-sufficiency. And most often, this employment was related to textiles and stitching, This recent scholarship includes Laura Gowing's very recent book called Ingenious Trade, Women and Work in 17th Century London, and Sarah Bendel's recent article titled The Queen's Dressmakers, Women's Work and the Clothing Trades in Late 17th Century London, which was published in Women's History Review. This is all to say that there is a large-scale move happening now toward studying not only women, but their work, the labor they did in exchange for payment. So it's the perfect time to learn and think about why the Royal School of Needlework was founded. As we all know, embroidery brings pleasure and joy and a sense of calm, but for many centuries, it's also offered financial agency and freedom. Embroidery and women's work are inextricably bound up together. That's it from me this episode. Thank you to Lynn Hulse for a wonderful interview and to you all for listening. We love an origin story, don't we? I'll be back soon with more episodes, and in the meantime, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and rate and review it if you're so inclined. I would very much appreciate it. Now go out and stitch some stories, and try to wrap your head around the fact that Victoria Welby once gathered nearly 700 objects in six weeks for an exhibition. That's crazy. Bye!